Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's show, we talk about bioimpedance monitoring to treat heart patients. The um, impedance measurements is something that's being built into patients' devices that receive pacemakers or implantable defibrillators. Plus, how medical schools can inspire students to embrace primary care. Um, we are uh, not producing enough primary care physicians to, to replace those who retire, and uh, there are all sorts of reasons for that. And a program to prevent deadly accidents for teen drivers. Teen drivers are twice as likely to go through and have a fatal car accident than every other age group combined. And there's a lot of factors that play into it. You'll get a checkup from the neck up and hear a selection from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, what medical students can do to help inspire more students to embrace primary care, and a program to prevent deadly auto accidents for teen drivers. But first, a new procedure to help heart patients combat their disease. Over 600,000 people die of heart disease in, in the United States every year. That's one in every four deaths, and it remains the leading cause of death for both men and women. But there is a new use for an existing procedure that may help heart patients in their struggle with the disease. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Robert Carhart, Associate Professor of Medicine at Upstate Medical University, specializing in cardiology. Welcome, Dr. Carhart. Thanks for coming in. So this procedure we're talking about, mm -hmm. it's kind of an older procedure, but you're using it in new ways, and it can help heart patients. What is it? What's it called? And tell us about it. Okay. It, it, basically, what the procedure is, is measuring something called impedance, um, specifically, in this case, thoracic impedance. Um, if you go back to high school physics, impedance is basically resistance to electrical current flow. Um, so depending on the material the electricity is moving through, there's more or less resistance. And specifically in people, um, if the electrical current is moving through solid tissue or water, there's less resistance to flow than through air. Um, so in patients, and specifically in cardiac patients, we're looking at what amount of resistance, basically reflecting how much fluid there is in their chest. Now, the technology was being used in, and still is used in some places to measure hemodynamic parameters, specifically something called cardiac output, how much blood is being pumped per minute circulating through the body. Um, the, the technology here has been adapted a little bit, and we're using it now locally specifically to look at how much fluid a patient has in their chest. So, and what is that? And what's the purpose of that? I so I understand what you're saying. So basically, what impedance does is a measure of how well the or how the electrical current moves through mm -hmm. certain yes. mass, whether right. it be in this case a fluid mass or air or body tissue, Correct. and that tells you what exactly. Well, what we're using it for is to measure exactly how much excess fluid patients have on board. So in patients with heart failure. One of the biggest things, and part of the word congestive, is how much water they're actually retaining. Um, and as the tissue becomes saturated, as they retain more fluid, pressures go up inside the blood vessels. That fluid tends to leak out into the tissues. And when that occurs, the tissues become saturated with more water. That decreases the resistance, so impedance goes down. Um, so in the past, this whole concept of impedance was being used for a variety of other things. I mean, I read correct. somewhere that it was 40 years ago it was first determined it could be used in some way as a diagnostic tool. But over the years, you found or people have found that it's more predictive or more helpful in focusing on this particular type of heart problem, yeah. which is, as you mentioned, congestive heart failure, which means... Which means that... Basically, the patient is congested or fluid overloaded. Um, and why does that happen? 
It typically is a reflection of an inefficiency between how much blood is being delivered to the kidneys and how efficient the kidneys are in terms of pushing that excess fluid out. So as a patient's, for example, a patient's cardiac output decreases, the body releases a lot of hormones, um, causing them to hold on to more fluid. And that's just a a normal response, the body assuming that your cardiac output has gone down because you've lost volume. So what is, but what exactly is that telling you then about the heart and its capabilities? Right. It's telling us essentially that the heart is not able to compensate for the demands being put on the patient. Um, so in some patients that may be you know, they're, they become ill, they have a bacterial infection, their heart can't keep up with the demands. There are many other conditions, but most classically in, in this country, it means the heart has dilated and the muscle itself has weakened. So the amount of blood that's being put out per minute has dropped off. So there are numerous causes for congestive heart failure. It could be an acute issue, perhaps, like, yes. a, like an infection, mm-hmm. something putting the person at risk for a short period of time, or some more long, long-standing chronic problems, like you mentioned, that their heart has weakened over time and right. it's not efficiently pu- functioning. So who are the patients that are that you would use this kind of technology on? Well, essentially what, what is being done, again, using this technology, it's another way to measure how wet or dry a patient is, so how much fluid they're holding on to. One of the most difficult things in assessing these chronic congested patients is, are they retaining more fluid or not? And that then would guide how you treat them in terms of how much diuretics you give them to remove the excess fluid. And and one of the ways that we do it traditionally is we use their daily weights. So the patient gets up in the morning, they stand on a scale, and we go by their weight a sudden change in weight over 24 hours is typically because they're holding on to excess water. In, in this case, this technology gives us another way to look at that. So it, it removes a, a little bit of the subjectivity. I mean, patients can have swelling in their legs and not have heart failure. Um, but, you know, judging whether or not their feet look puffy is a very subjective thing. I mean, they've tried you know, people will measure their the diameter of their calves, for example, and, you know, try to correlate that to how much fluid they're carrying. But it's not obviously very reliable. So so basically to get to the, the crucial point here, though, is that you are, that this is being used mostly, almost exclusively at this point with patients who have congestive heart failure. It's a way of measuring how much fluid is the heart is holding or the body is holding, and it will affect then what type of prescriptive care you offer, what kind of treatment, what kinds of diiuretics perhaps to lessen the amount of fluid in the body. And does that then help the heart when you do that? Well, it helps the heart. um, If the heart is decongested, it becomes more efficient. Um, And certainly one of the the concerns with giving patients diuretics sort of blindly is that they can go very quickly in the other direction. They can become dehydrated. That can lead to acute kidney failure, which then obviously worsens their overall prognosis. So the the goal of this is really to try to get patients to a state where they can stay at home. Um, And what the attempt is, is that if we can keep a sort of eye on their volume status and interject early, they don't decompensate and end up back in the hospital where they require intravenous medicine. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with cardiologist Dr. Robert Carhart. We're talking about how bioimpedance testing can help patients with congestive heart failure. Now, I understand that there are two methodologies, one where you basically just place it on the chest, another where it's actually implanted. How do you, Which is most effective, and how do you choose? Well, the, the difference is that the um, impedance measurements is something that's being built into patients' devices that receive pacemakers or implantable defibrillators. So they have these internal devices already in place. And the, so it's an add-on. It's, it's basically an add-on. It's an additional feature that's, that's being provided by manufacturers. So if a patient has that, we can use that. So if they have um, a pacemaker, you can add this additional software or what have you, mm-hmm. and, and you can be getting readings on a regular basis. Yes, and and this has actually been done in clinical trials where patients would basically have a home monitor. Their device would transmit to this monitor, which would then transmit these no, these this data 
to the physician's office, and then their management is based on some of these numbers. So it's ongoing. In other words, in that kind of case where it's implanted, this is something that's an ongoing analysis of what their numbers are. But how about the one that's placed around the chest? Yeah. It seems to me that would be less uh, effective in a way. Well, it it actually has gone, or it has improved, I should say, as the electrode technology has improved. And again, you're still a little bit at the mercy of skin conditions and how well the leads are placed, but it gives you another way to measure it. And typically what will happen is a patient is hospitalized with heart failure, their diuresis to what is felt to be sort of their, quote, dry weight, where they don't have excess fluid on board, and a measurement is taken of their thoracic impedance. Then once they go home, sequential measurements are taken typically a couple of times a week to look for trends. Um, if their impedance starts dropping, that means they're holding on to more fluid and they may need more diuretics. So they may come into a doctor's office and have check. let's say initially after hospitalization, they may need to be checked several times a week just to make sure that things are kind of on track. Right. One of the things we're actually doing locally is we've partnered with a home care agency. So then visiting nurses are actually going to the patient's house and doing the measurements at their house. So they don't even, it doesn't even require a trip to the doctor's office. So it strikes me that, that the determination of which type you would use would depend in part whether a person has a pacemaker already in place. You might not opt to implant one of these singularly. That, is that what I'm correct. getting? Yeah, there, there are some devices that are in development that, that would be implanted just for this type of monitoring, but they haven't really caught on because, again, they're very invasive in the concept of having a, a, a wire stuck in your chest chronically versus some pads put on a couple times a week. Most patients opt for the external. So using this device as a way of determining the optimum treatment, in this case diuretics, how does that affect the outcome or the long-term, you know, basically the health of the patient? Well, I think that the, the important part of this is really decreasing hospital stays um, in rehospitalizations. One of the biggest problems that exists with these chronic congestive heart failure patients is that they end up back and forth to the hospital. They start gaining fluid. They decompensate. They're back in the hospital. They're there for several days. Then they go home, and then the cycle just keeps rolling. So the biggest intervention here is really trying to decrease those number of trips to the hospital. In addition, it also guides us, as I mentioned, in the other direction, that we don't overtreat patients, that we're not giving them so many diuretics that they become dehydrated and start developing kidney problems. Are the findings themselves predictive of future risks for the patient, or is it really pretty much kind of this issue of homeostasis, trying to find this this middle ground, this equilibrium? I mean, does it's, it suggest they're going to get worse over time? Or well, the, the more difficult they are to control and diuresis is a predictor of where they are in terms of their their long-term outlook. So, you know, the, while the tool is being used as a way to kind of keep them in a, a balance, it, it suggests if we're having more and more difficulty that the patient may be failing more, may require other things to be done. So how, how widely is this being done or how frequently is this being done? Well, it, it's not being done widely. You know, the technology is trying to be accepted um, in terms of different places. There have been clinical trials or small trials that have been done with patients that have demonstrated benefits. Um, but again, it's, it's a lot of logistics. Um, you know, buying or purchasing the machine for the home care agency, they have to buy the equipment. They have to get the electrodes. You know, there's questions of what gets reimbursed, what gets paid yeah, for, I guess what that was, doesn't. My next question, is it very expensive, and, and is it something that insurance can cover? The, the insurance, it, it ends up, in, at least in the cases where we're doing it, it ends up being covered in sort of the, the comprehensive home care checkbook, if you will. Um, and the agency that's doing it is pretty much paying for these as a as an extra benefit to the patient. Um, I think, you know, again, there needs to be more data in terms of how effective it is in reducing hospital stays um, or rehospitalizations. But again, that's a very difficult number to put your head around because you're talking about 
well, if we didn't have this, they'd be in the hospital four times, but because they're not, they're only in the hospital two times. But ultimately, does it affect long-term outcomes, I guess, in terms of, you know, morbidity, mortality kind of well, thing? Well, I think, you know, from an anecdotal standpoint, yes. The patients that we're using this on have, have de we've decreased their hospital rehospitalization rate dramatically. Um, and we have a better way of managing them and keeping them at home and keeping in control. And we have a better understanding of what their requirements are. So overall, it's, it really does benefit the patients. You just have to gather the data to prove it and perhaps have insurance companies willing to pay for it Correct. to go forward. Thank you so very much. My guest has been Dr. Robert Carhart. He's Associate Professor of Medicine at Upstate Medical University, specializing in cardiology. Once again, thanks a lot. Next up, what medical schools can do to help inspire more students to embrace primary care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen along with you. As the baby boomers become senior citizens and our aging population continues to live longer, the need for primary care physicians is growing in this country. But recent data suggests that their ranks are shrinking. So what role can medical schools play in this equation? Here with more on all of this is Dr. Christopher Morley, Associate Professor of Family Medicine, Public Health, and psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Morley. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. So we're facing a shortage of prime in primary care. Tell us about that. Sure. There are estimates that indicate that uh, roughly between 40 and 50 percent of the physician workforce ought to be uh, composed of primary care physicians for, to achieve optimal health outcomes. Um, and that simply isn't the case. And it depends how you measure what a primary care physician is. So I'd be hesitant to quote a rate of what it is today because, you know, whether you count various specialties or different types of people doing different tasks, that rate can vary. But it certainly isn't 40 to 50 percent of the population. And actually, I saw some stats that were suggesting that um, basically we're going to need about 100,000 primary care or family physicians that will be needed in, in the next um, – 10 years, and right now we're only about half the number is being attracted to meet that demand. That's right. And uh, the, the Robert Graham Center, uh, located in Washington, D.C., which is a, a policy institute uh, run by the, the American Academy of Family Physicians, has done a lot of work in that regard and generates a lot of these numbers. Um, and uh, listeners can certainly go to their website, the Robert Graham Center. It's pretty easy to find on Google. Um, but there's a lot of information there about that. But that's true. Um, we are uh, not producing enough primary care physicians to to replace those who retire. And uh, there are all sorts of reasons for that. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, why do we think this is happening? I mean, somebody, some critics have po uh, posed the fact that doctors are working harder for lower pay. I'm talking about primary care now, mm -hmm. less prestige attached to it, more administrative headaches have turned doctors away from, from things like family medicine or internal medicine. But um, basically, what, in your experience, why, what else seems to be playing a role here? Well, to be fair to the entire medical community, um, all physicians tend to be working harder and longer. Um, that's, that is not peculiar to to primary, primary care. care, and that's been since 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 probably since the 80s, I would say. Um, however, particularly in primary care, there are a lot of shifts that are going on. The the uh, electronic health record transition has certainly hit in recent years, and the transition to electronic health records um, certainly has uh, good effects on the population level and on the system on the system wide level. But on a on the level of the the individual primary care doc. There's a lot of expense in implementing a new system. There's a lot of uh, lost productivity as they learn the new system and, and uh, change their workflow to accommodate new systems. So primary care has been bearing a lot of that brunt. Um, and they're also become data, basically data clerks. I mean, they're, they're maintaining tr so much more information in these new record-keeping systems that their time 
is spent doing a lot of that. I, I think it's fair to say that while hospitals and hospital-based systems maintain uh, data on sick people, knowing anything about the general population, the, 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 the well uh, and, and the worried well, um, those data come from primary care physician's office. They're on the front lines of data collection. Um, so from either a research perspective or, or the perspective of public policy, yeah, they, they are, um, they're bearing the brunt. So the consequences of people, of the shrinking pool, and the fact that the need is growing, obviously, are seem self-evident. We're not going to have enough primary care doctors to take care of the growing need. That's right. There's an old statistic that uh, won't depict well as we talk about it on the radio without the visual, but basically most, uh, most care occurs in the outpatient setting. Very few people actually are cared for in the hospital. It's out of a thousand visits, there's a minuscule amount that actually occur in a hospital. But subspecialist-driven um, inpatient care gets most of our attention and most of our money. And that's part of the issue, uh, and that's part of the reason why the, the, um, the health workforce and the physician workforce specifically is so skewed. And also, it seems to me that primary care has been the gatekeeper, both in the in the world of pediatricians as well as internal medicine or family practice. They've basically been the gatekeeper of keeping people healthy, prophylaxis, and keeping them out of emergency rooms and, and attempting to control the health care costs. And basically, with with a decrease in these gatekeepers, the question really remains, what's going to happen to the system? Sure. Will, it be, will it bear? I, I, I would bear actually us? want to... Uh, uh, dodge the the term gatekeeper because that's that's been used as sort of a pejorative to yes um, to depict people who are keeping those who are seeking health care away from the services exactly, they need exactly and that's incorrect and that's not correct yeah the, what what the point of a primary care physician located in the community is to keep people healthy and keep them out of health care that either they don't actually need or that they shouldn't need if they're doing uh, the right things when they're walking, talking, living, breathing. And, very and well healthy. said, very well said. If you're just joining us, you're listening to HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Dr. Christopher Morley. He's a social science researcher, and we're talking about the current and future shortage of primary care physicians and the potential consequences of this. So getting back to this notion of what can be done about it, medical schools um, obviously need to play some role in turning this tide. I guess the question is, how can they do that? But even before that, what have they been doing to date? Well, by and large, some some medical school campuses have been opened, and, and uh, Upstate is one institution that has a regional branch campus down in Binghamton. That's um, The branch campus tends to have a primary care mission uh, associated with it. And that's not alone. There, there, are, there are whole medical schools that have developed with a, with a primary care mission. But by and large, those tend to be, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, in the minority of, of allopathic and, and medical schools in, in the U.S. Um, the, the medical schools that, that, by and large, comprise the majority of the community of, 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 of medical education um, tend to prioritize, based upon what I would say are, are economic needs or the, the needs of its faculty or the desires of the impressions of its faculty. Certainly there are things that happen outside of medical school, like the National Health Service Corps, which um, will fund people to go into primary care, especially in, in underserved areas. Um, but really, student opinions often form in medical school, and many of them come in stating that they, uh, they want to um, go into primary care or go into some kind of underserved care setting. And those two things are linked pretty closely, as it turns out. Um, but what we've done studies here, right, at, at Upstate, that, that shows that whatever that idealism is, whether it's what they say in an interview or whether it's, it's what they actually believe as they come in, whatever that is, it trails off as they become more worried about debt and um, lifestyle and, and the prestige of their career and things like that. That tends to do way more heavily as they get further through medical school. So you see a trend that they may be idealistic at the start, but something in the process of their education, whether it be the culture that they find themselves in or the pressures to pay back student loans or what have you, move them a little bit away from that more idealistic vision or mission. So my question then is, what can medical schools be doing? So... 
we undertook a study to uh, to look at the mission statements of medical schools because it seems like a mission statement should be a pretty simple thing to craft. And frankly, uh, in many industries, you do your mission statement, but then you most of us kind of ignore it and we don't pay much attention. Well, it turns out that if you look at the content of the mission statement, that can actually be predictive of the types of physicians you produce. Um, so more on that study in a moment, but what medical schools can do is examine their own culture, the culture that produces that mission statement or the mission or the, the culture that's influenced by that mission statement. Because it turns out students are very impacted by what they hear around them. We've done a study using text messaging, for example, that shows um, even over a short period of time of about five months, student impressions and intentions to go into things like primary care or other service-oriented uh, careers tends to trail off as they hear negative comments from faculty or other students. Give me about, an example of some negative comments a medical student might hear. Let's say they come into school very hopeful and idealistic. I'm going to go and work with the underserved. I'm going to work you know, with the Native American population out in Wyoming or something like that. What, what factors or what types of messages are they getting to turn them away from this? Well, they hear things like you'll never pay off your medical school debt. Medical school debt is a huge problem for all sorts of people uh, going into the medical profession, but particularly for those who, and I'm, I'm using air quotes that your listeners can't see, but make a low salary. Uh, mm -hmm. and typically, that tends to be in the high, you know, the the the, the high one hundred to two hundred thousand dollar range, um, but. Um, but when you're looking at a, a debt of two, three, four hundred thousand dollars at the start of your your life, and you're you know you're getting at a residency at you know, twenty, twenty nine, thirty, that's a lot of money to be in debt. And and uh, going into just a different specialty can help you pay that off in a very short period of time compared to primary care, where you're, you're going to carry it with you for a while. But you're suggesting that the culture. So let me get something straight. So you looked at mission statements mm -hmm. across medical schools. And so that was your hypothesis, that the mission statement could affect the outcome of how students come out of the medical school with regard to the sense of social responsibility. What did you find? Well, we examined the mission statements of every medical school in the country, and we had a panel of raters, and these raters were everything from university presidents down to clerkship coordinators and, and medical students and faculty. And we had them rate... Um, each school's medical school, each medical school's mission statement, on what we on a social mission scale that we develop. Basically, does the mission statement generically speak about producing great physicians or some some sort of vanilla statement like that, or does it actually name populations or types of practices? Do they name a mission to produce primary care uh, physicians, or do they name um, say taking care of their rural or their underserved or their inner city uh, residents? particularly, does the medical school set that out as part of its reason for existence? So once you determined you rated these medical student, mm -hmm. these mission statements, what did you find in terms of outcomes? Well, it turns out that matters, that the medical schools that have a mission statement that says they, they are there to do this sort of work, turns out those schools are producing physicians who go on to practice in primary care, they go on to serve in what are called health professional shortage areas or medically underserved areas. Those are uh, federal designations, but they, they do have some meaning um, on the ground. They're poor, medically underserved communities. So what's the conclusion here? I mean, obviously there's something that you're leading up to. What can make a difference then? We think uh, that medical schools as, a, as institutions can be introspective and think about the culture and think about the messages that they give to students. Everything we talked about, for example, with debt or, or other things that medical students hear, like prestige, there are solutions to those problems. They cannot devalue primary care, and they can point out ways that actually the debt isn't as big a problem once people are practicing. There are, there are all sorts of programs that help relieve debt, and there are ways that... that um, that those problems can just be simply overcome and that students who are idealistic can be recruited. They can also select students in accord with the mission. They can select people to come in who have and will maintain an idealistic sense of purpose that underpins the reason they're becoming a physician as opposed to people who are you know, chasing prestige or, or financial security. And they also can run programs like rural medicine type programs. I know Upstate has one, but those kinds of programs that actually attract and 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 um, groom individuals who who might plan to then go back into these underserved communities. 
Absolutely. Uh, we have a, a rural medical program as well, into the RMED program, the Rural Medical Education Program, as well as the MDMPH program. These programs attract a different type of student. Um, and students who are interested in these underserved areas or population health um, tend to also go into primary care and you solve two problems at once. So the bottom line really is that the medical schools can play a big role in shaping that next crop of, med of, of doctors with the notion that perhaps raising the prestige level of primary care in, and helping and choosing the kind of kids who would perhaps seek that as a career plan, career directive. Absolutely. The point of our study is that it's not an accident. It's not the simple invisible hand of economics. Um, that medical schools can take an active role in shaping their own culture and supporting programs that lead to the production of students who want to go into primary care and underserved care. Um, these things don't happen uh, as a fait accompli. They, they have to be an effort. Thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Christopher Morley, Associate Professor of Family Medicine, Public Health, and Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. The child is mother to the mother, and the child is mother to the father. Well, folks, as some of you know, my mother had Alzheimer's, and as the only one of her three sons within a day's drive, I had the job of taking care of her for 10 years as she became more and more disabled. She died around last Thanksgiving at 98 even though I'm a psychologist who knows something about Alzheimer's, and even though she was in a nursing home with 24-hour care for the last three years of her life, my child is mother to the mother role was the hardest thing I have ever had to do. And even though it's been over six months since she died, I am still working to get my own life settled down. There's still stuff from her move out of her house over 10 years ago in our garage and basement and attic that favorite pair of lamps to pass along to Cousin X, please, the plant fertilizer for you, Richie, to sprinkle on the rose bushes I gave you, and the toys you boys played with that I thought your grandkids-to-be would love. You get the idea, folks. <laughs> and I just did her last tax return, and believe it or not, I'm still waiting on her last pension check because I called to tell them before they sent that month's check that she had died, and they said blah, 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 you don't want to know, just believe me, I am still waiting. Bottom line, even though mom is dead, the work goes on. Who would have thunk it? And when my son called to wish my wife Pam happy Mother's Day and then asked how I was doing, I said, well, I'm getting closer to finishing my own mom's leftover stuff. And even though the last years were often very difficult, I miss her today and wish I could visit and give her a big Happy Mother's Day kiss and hug. My son said to me, Bub, that's what he calls me, Bub, <laughs> Bub, you should do something nice for yourself today, for all the years you took care of Grandma. I had trouble taking in what he said, so I asked him to say it again. You should do something nice for yourself today, for all the years you took care of Grandma. I was very touched. The child is mother to the father this time. So I did. Nothing big, just relaxed, took extra time talking with him and our other son and celebrating the day with my wife, a wonderful mom to our kids, what I enjoyed doing most. And it felt really good. So, yes, those of you folks out there in Radioland who do a lot of caring for others, you know who you are. Do something nice for yourselves every day. I'm Dr. Rich, momming myself now, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, a program to prevent deadly auto accidents for teens. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Motor vehicle crashes are the leading cause of death for teens in the United States. And in 2011, about 2,600 teens aged 16 to 14 were killed and more than 290,000 were treated in emergency departments for injuries suffered in motor vehicle crashes. Fortunately, teen motor vehicle crashes are preventable, and there are proven strategies that can improve the safety of young drivers on the road. Joining us to share one such strategy are registered nurse Kim Nasby, the Trauma Injury Prevention Coordinator, and registered nurse and paramedic Jerry Morrison, the Trauma Outreach and Education Coordinator for the Trauma Department at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having us. So. Jerry, teens have a very high percentage of auto accidents in this country. Tell us about that. Well, teen drivers are twice as likely to go through and have a fatal car accident than every other age group combined. And there's a lot of factors that play into it. They are much less experienced, Um, especially in our area. We go through and we talk about motor vehicle crashes. Um, It's not just our roadways. Uh, We are four seasons of recreational vehicles. Um, So that plays into uh, many of those factors. And if you think about things such as, you know, our, we go through and we have, you know, some in-town traffic, but a lot of rural areas with speed limits of 55 miles an hour. Um, We've got highways at 65. Um, So they're more prone to accidents than some people in in larger cities where it's a a slower traffic uh, speed. Um, And, you know, the weather is a major factor also. Yeah, that can certainly contribute. So, Kim, who's most at risk? I mean, within the teen population, who's most highly at risk? Well, in this age group, um, they pick 16 to 24 um, to target for this um, demographic because most of those children are the ones that are high at risk, and most of it is boys. Boys have a higher risk than um, young girls, but it really is pretty close. The boys kind of skeet by the girls just a little bit for that. Um, and really, it's the mo- the most inexperienced drivers. So it's a, when you first get your license, so or a, your newly, first a newly licensed newly teen. licensed teen. Um, and some of those teens are actually waiting a little bit longer to get their licenses um, because of some of the graduated programs that we have um, to get your license. So some of those teens are new teens driving at eighteen, mm-hmm. versus twenty years ago, everybody at sixteen got their driver's license and they were a new driver. Now sometimes your 18, 19, 20-year-olds are brand new drivers. So that might mitigate, though, one would hope, mitigate the idea of those kinds of crashes. But the fact is, basically, new drivers are more at risk. Males are more at risk. How about teens that drive with teen passengers? That are is they a, more at risk? That's a huge risk for teens, um, and really for anybody, but for new drivers especially. So some of the new laws that they have, where you can only have one person in the car with you, one passenger that is not a family member, those reasons are for this data that we see with these young drivers um, having all these accidents and sometimes even um, death involved in some of these crashes. Jerry, what, what other factors play a role in putting teens more at risk? I mean, I read somewhere, for example, that teens are more likely than older drivers to underestimate a dangerous situation or they may not allow enough space between cars. What are some of the other things that, that we've found? Well, I mean, there's so many pieces that that go with, um, you know, the younger drivers. To their advantage, uh, they have much quicker reflexes than um, the older drivers, but they lack the experience with it. Um, Perhaps the judgment. The judgment, and they just simply don't have as you know enough time behind the wheel for routine driving, let alone all those specially special considerations we have here. How about drinking? Um, pretty amazing because in the 15 to 19 year old age group, um, the statistic is is nearly one quarter of those fatal motor vehicle crashes uh, go through and involve alcohol. So even so it's though very the, high, and they yeah, and, and not old enough to legally drive, but it it's one four one in four crashes to legally drive or drink in some cases, right? How about um, seatbelt use and things of that nature? Um, I think the most startling statistic on seatbelt use is non-driving passengers. And in that age group, only 55% of, of passengers in a vehicle are wearing a seatbelt. Hmm. So when we run our class, um, we ask um, all the kids, how many of you wear your seatbelt? Raise your hand. How many of you make pa- your 
people that are with you wear their seatbelt, please raise your hand. It is startling to see how many hands are not raised. Because shocking, actually. Shocking. Most of the teens now are all wearing their seatbelt. I would say when you ask that question, a lot of them are, if they're driving, they're wearing their seatbelt, especially the new drivers. Um, however, they don't make the people in the back seat wear their seatbelts. Um, and it's similar for um, when you ask how many of your parents make you wear your seatbelt while you're sitting in the back seat. It's startling to see how many children do not have to wear their seatbelt in the back seat. Really? Yes. Why is this phenomenon? I, I read somewhere that the hundred deadliest days for teens is around graduation time. Do we understand why that is? Does it have to do with the use of alcohol, do you think? I think that's a piece of it. I certainly don't think that's the only thing. Um, here at the Trauma Center, um, our busiest days are from Memorial Day to Labor Day for trauma in general. But that's, I think, also explained by the fact that people are out and about yes. as opposed to hold up in their house Absolutely. trying to stay warm. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of different factors involved. But for kids especially, it's usually from that um, Memorial Day to that Labor Day. And graduations usually fall around that same time. So a lot of parties happen, um, which some of them include some underage drinking, um, on top of which the kids are out and about, like you said, much more. So they're going in their cars to get to where they need to be. We have a very mobile society, especially here in Syracuse. Mm -hmm. So in order to get to the beach, you have to get in your car and go somewhere. You don't walk, mm -hmm. right? And so, public transportation isn't as readily available. Correct. So these kids are, are piling in cars and going to the mall. They're piling in cars and going to parties and going to the beach and doing all of those things. So I think there's you know, a usage of the vehicles factor. that yeah. makes a difference in those hundred, hundred so, deadly So days. how, both of you, how can, what are the factors or what are the, how can we prevent these crashes? I mean, we're going to get to the program that you guys work on, but specifically, I mean, <clears throat> is it a matter of really working with people to use their seatbelts? How about the not drinking and driving? And, and obviously there's another factor that has come up recently having to do with technology. Our electronic boom that we have seen, just even in the past 10 years, has um, significantly affected motor vehicle crash rates. So for, um, for our area in central New York, our distracted driving rates have actually um, superseded and, and gone over the drinking and driving rates. Really? Yes. 60% are distracted driving fatal accidents now. Wow. And is that that's just within the teen population or overall? Because I would think it would affect adults as well. I don't have the particular statistic for adults, but for the teen drivers, it's sixty percent. Sixty percent. It's and it's that's significant un... because um, if you have any teenagers that you know or are around any, what are they doing? They're constantly in their nose in their whether they're device. in the car or not. Correct. <laughs> so you know, and I have teens, and you know, I'll have five of them at the house, and I walk in, and it's completely quiet because they're all texting each other or doing whatever they're doing. Right? <laughs> it's so, beyond comprehension, it, right. frankly. So it, they're very connected to their devices. To their devices. It's but part of not their lifeline. <laughs> For them, it's part of their lifeline. So when they get into the car, they don't think twice about not using that device. It's so whether just an it's, extension. Yeah. Whether yeah. it's plugging things into an adapter so they can listen to their music on their device or getting a text message, sending something, they don't think it can wait for five minutes while they drive to the store. They feel like they have to answer some of those things. So distracted driving is an incredibly um, high risk behavior. High risk behavior for this age group. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with registered nurses Kimberly Nas Nasby and Jerry Morrison. We're talking about teens, auto accidents, the causes, and how to prevent them. So, this whole idea, though, of graduated um, driver licensing, which has started, that you alluded to earlier, which is to have people start um, to drive later or have restricted ability capabilities or restricted abilities and then slowly work into it has that made a difference do you think i think it has made a difference in the statistics of um, the very young and inexperienced drivers um, the 15 16 17 year olds who are just getting their permits um, most of them most of the laws are based on age and not necessarily when you first get your permit so for instance if you have a 16 year old that's going out to get their permit. They can't have anybody else in the car with them that is not a family member. 
um, until they're 17, then you can have one. So there's certain things. But if an 18-year-old who's never had a driver's license goes to get a permit, those rules don't apply because it's based on age. Mm. So some of those statistics, we are not um, able to show how much that's improved because they're so new. Mm-hmm. So um, we, it's still the jury's out exactly it's still, how much it's happening. It's still helping. happening. I can only tell you from personal experience, because I happen to have at least a couple of teenagers, um, it, it had made a difference between my um, my first child and my second child, because my first child didn't have those rules, and my second child, who's now 18, had those rules. And it made a big difference in her ability to be aware of her surroundings when there wasn't anybody else in the car. So because it is a complex skill to drive, you really do need to have complete attention, which is why the distracted driving thing is so problematic and scary. Let me get to your program because I don't want to run out of time. You're doing a program right now, an injury, uh, basically an injury prevention program designed to prevent these accidents. What is it called, Jerry? And- called Let's Not Meet by Accident, and it's an one-and-a-half-hour program that we run for um, young school-age new drivers, um, and we're heavily involved, uh, even particularly with the driver ed programs, um, and it, really the focus is, is we talk about um, distracted driving and impaired driving. Uh, we start by looking and hearing about a car accident, um, we talk about the injuries that were that happened in there. Um, we talk about the long-term outcomes uh, to the not just the uh, young people that were in the vehicle, but to their friends and family. And uh, we round up the uh, program with talking about how every component that caused that accident could have been prevented. So basically, it's an hour and a half of someone's time. So it's a one-time shot, basically, and um, any kid who signs up basically is <clears throat> someone who's just either beginning to drive or maybe has been driving for a short time. So basically, um, how do you, I mean, first of all, how do you evaluate the effectiveness of the message to these kids? Do you think it makes a difference? Is it scare tactics or is it I think it information? Makes a, I think it makes a huge difference for these kids, especially from the... Um, the feedback that we get from the schools that we that participate in the program. So most of these um, kids come through either a driver's ed program or through their school. So anybody in our area that uses Upstate as their um, trauma center can come to this program. Um, so they co- they call the um, our number and we'll give that at the end of the program for everyone. Um, and they sign up for the for the program and we see 150 kids at a time to give um, this message to and I think it's really making a difference. The feedback that we get from the kids and from the schools that do participate in this program has always been incredibly positive. And oh, you see how many at one shot? 150 kids. At one time? At one time. We and do it in an auditorium times? setting. And how many times a year does that happen? We try to run at least 10 programs. Sometimes we do 12. We do one a month usually wow. and then we do on a as needed basis. Um, so if there's some special circumstances for certain areas that need some special circumstances, we take those on a case-by-case basis. Last year, for example, we had a total of over a 1,000 young uh, students in that age group that participated in the program. It'd be very interesting to be able to track going forward people who participated to see if going forward on their record that they had been involved, hopefully not in any kind of really serious or fatal crash, but if they perhaps had a clean record with no accidents as a result of it. It would be very interesting. Thank you both for coming in. This is very, very interesting and such important message to get out there. And give us the number real quick. If you go to our webpage, so if you go to upstate.edu and in the search bar you put trauma, our webpage will come up and you can f- um, get see the our phone numbers and get all the information. And again, the class is called Let's Not Meet by Accident. Great. Thank you so much. My guests have been registered nurses, Kim Nasby, Trauma Injury Prevention Coordinator, and registered nurse and paramedic, Jerry Morrison, Trauma Outreach and Education Coordinator for the Trauma Team at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's Health And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. We receive many stories about the boomer generations caring for their aging parents. I'd like to read two poems by Ithaca playwright and poet Kathleen Kramer, 
who describes first witnessing her mother's death and then her father's choosing their headstone. The first poem is called Still for My Mother. When we noticed lunchtime voices in the hall, the ding of a call button, squeak of rubber soles on tile floors, we knew the sound of her breathing had ceased. For long moments, her shoulder under my hand remained warm. Then a stillness, profound and deep, came upon her, not of worldly sleep, but of rest, unbounded by time. All her ailments, her frailties, fell away. And the wholeness, the holiness, which remained, gave her back to us as she was, as she is. The second poem is called Their Stone. Granite, coarse and gray, except for the face, polished to a dark sheen, and engraved with the symbols he chose, two birds gazing at each other, two rings entwined on a vine, embracing their names, the important dates. I think of the nature of tethers and chains, of her blindness claiming his patience, taming him to her side. Each day for years, he spooned mashed potatoes, canned peas into her waiting mouth, her need feeding his to be needed. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we get an update on bariatric surgery options, plus that strange phenomenon of mass hysteria in children, and the importance of planning ahead for end-of-life care. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can get a podcast of it by going to our website. That's HealthLink on Air, that's all one word, dot org. HealthLink on Air is directed by Amber Smith and produced by Steve Marks, with sound engineers John Miller and Gerard Roy. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.